We had a Easter break last week, but we're going to jump right back into chapter 4 of Exodus. And we went through verse 9, but we'll recap and go through those first nine verses again. So Exodus chapter uh, 1, 4, whatever, (laughs) 1 through (laughs) 9. Off to a great start here. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. We went over these verses, but that was a couple of weeks ago. Moses has started his but suppose scenario with God. And but suppose is simply disobedience or saying to God, find somebody else to deliver Israel. And Moses goes on to say, I don't feel like I can do this. So God, let me slide. Let me just go my own way, find another deliverer of Israel. But God has given Moses several signs. Several signs that are to comfort Moses that he is with him. The shepherd's staff or his rod, which Moses carries, is now a consecrated tool from God in the hand of Moses. And Moses will use this rod throughout his ministry, throughout 40 years out in the wilderness. He will use it to part the Red Sea. He will use it to strike the rock and water will come forth. But this rod is a symbol, a sign to Moses from God. And it's a sign of God's supernatural power And it's right there in the hand of Moses. And then next we have Moses' hand become leprous as he puts it into his bosom. Then he pulls it out and it's clean. He puts it back in, it's leprous. He pulls it out, it's clean. And if I was Moses, I would have probably done that a few times just to watch the hand change. (laughs) But Moses gets to experience the forgiveness of sins and it's a sign unto him because leprosy is a type of sin. 
And so leprous, cleansed. And he gets to see that God can supernaturally cleanse. And aren't we glad of that? It's a demonstration to Moses of God's redemptive powers. We never read of leprosy in Scripture as being healed. You can look all you please. You'll never see leprosy being healed. It's always cleansed. Leprosy, being that type of sin, it's cleansed. And Moses, he has to understand the redemptive work of God for himself before he can go down, meet with the elders of the Hebrews, and talk to them about redemption. But the third sign, the water into blood, it's a sign of judgment from God, turning good water from the Nile into blood. And with this, God is destroying the very life cycle of all of Egypt because they depended upon the waters of the Nile for everything. The Egyptians were known, especially at this time, for worshiping many different idols. The water from the Nile was just one more of their things that they worship besides the living God. And the God will bring the plagues on Egypt and they will directly attack many of the idols that Egypt holds dear. So let's look at verses 10 through 17 now. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to them, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And he will be with your mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and ye shall be to him as God. And you shall take the rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So Moses gets his marching orders, but he's declaring to God how inadequate he is. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I am slow of tongue. I don't talk too good, God. <laughs> like that's a criteria. Most public speakers, including us pastors, way too often we fret about how we speak versus what we speak. Fear of public speaking, it can be a genuine fear. And you, you have to deal with it if you ever have the opportunity to speak publicly. Back early, 
when I began to seriously desire to serve the Lord, I was called on to teach a Bible study. Shortly before that, I had been to my pastor and I had told him how willing I was to serve and that I would do anything he wanted me to do except teach. So the first thing he calls upon me to do is to lead a Bible study. And he wants me to teach the singles at our fellowship. And if you know anything about singles fellowship, they're looking for a mate. They're not looking for a Bible study. So I had my work cut out for me. But before my first study, I was nervous, very nervous. To say I had butterflies would be a gross understatement. But I experienced serious stress over a Bible study. But I managed to get through that first study. But, hey, there's another study coming up next week. And I began to whine and complain to God because I was really a nervous wreck. But God was faithful to show to me very clearly that I was suffering from a fear of failing before man. Or to put it simply, I was being a man pleaser. I didn't like that. As I began to process that thought, and I began to process it thoroughly, I was ashamed of myself that I would fear men. But it brought about a principle in my life that I try to live with today. I try and please God with what I say to you. That takes a lot of stress away, believe me. The lesson that God taught me, however, it makes me keenly aware of when I hear a person, a teacher, even pastors, and they're trying to please their audience versus pleasing God with their message. And I have a constant prayer that I pray try to pray before I come up here every time, and that is, what do you want me to say to your people, Lord? Give me your message, and then give me the courage to deliver it. In verse 13, back to Moses, Moses is saying, please, God, send someone else. And then in verse 14, God's patience have run out with Moses and now God is angry with Moses. God declares to Moses, your brother Aaron is coming and he will be your spokesman to the people. He shall speak the words that I tell you to say to him. Moses will regret that Aaron is the spokesman later on, but we're way ahead of ourselves. But let's look at verses 18 through 23. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife, his sons, and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. 
And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Pretty vivid. Moses goes to his father-in-law Jethro and he asks permission to return to Egypt. Moses with Jethro's permission, heads off with Zipporah, Gershom, and it says son, so there were other children towards Egypt. God's instructions to Moses, do all that I tell you, Moses, even warning Pharaoh that I will kill Pharaoh's firstborn if he does not allow you to go out of Egypt. You have a nobody like Moses going and threatening the Pharaoh, the strongest king of the world at that time. And then God says, but Moses, he's not going to let you go because I'm going to harden his heart and he will not let you go. God is faithful to tell Moses how Pharaoh will react to God's word. And very seldom do we go into a situation blind. God is faithful to tell us what is going to take place. But I want to center in on verses 24 through 26. Now it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So, she, so he let him go. Then she said, you're a husband of blood because of the circumcision. We read these verses and we're tempted to ask, what's going on here? What does this have to do with Moses going and delivering Israel? And I'm glad you asked that question. We have the disobedience of Moses and Zipporah, and it is catching up with them. These three verses can almost seem like they're out of place, uh, except for the fact that God requires obedience from all of us, all of the people that call themselves a servant of God. He requires obedience. Moses is on his way to Egypt. It appears Moses is finally over the hump and he's going to go do what God has told him to do. So why does the angel of the Lord stop? Why is this angel intent on killing Moses? It's a good question. Perhaps this is the same angel some think it is, that appeared to Balaam and confronted Balaam and his donkey, and he had a flaming sword. And uh, the angel tells Balaam, I would have killed you had it not been for your donkey stopping. But let me tell you the reason 
that that angel is there to kill Moses. And we've got to go back to Genesis 17. It is a couple, three verses there, and I'll read them to you. God has laid down the requirements for Abraham and his children, and Moses is one of Abraham's grandchildren, okay? He's one of the Hebrew children. So let me read Genesis 17, 12, and 13. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Circumcision is required of all of Abraham's descendants, those that are born into his household or those that are even bought as slaves are to be circumcised. This circumcision God has deemed an everlasting covenant between him and the children of Israel. And if that male child is not circumcised, he shall be cut off, separated from Israel. But Moses, what has he done? He's fled Egypt. He went to the uh, backside of the desert, and he takes a Midianite as a wife, Zipporah. She is not familiar with the covenant between Israel and God, or that maybe she considers circumcision too radical a thing for her to obey. So let me read those three verses in Exodus again for you. 24 through 26. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Speaking of Moses. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, cast it at Moses' feet, and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, meaning that angel let Moses go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Bear in mind now, God is already angry at Moses. <laughs> and this angel many think it's the angel of death, is ready to kill Moses. Not just kill him, it says he seeks to kill Moses. means he's wanting to kill Moses. Zipporah, she takes a sharp flint stone and proceeds to circumcise Gershom. And then she throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, declaring, you are a husband of blood to me. The angel that was about to kill Moses, he is now appeased. Uh, and Moses' son, now circumcised, is in agreement with God's covenant with his people. Zipporah, doing this circumcision, tells us she is the one who has refused to obey God. She has refused to obey this covenant with Abraham and thus with Israel. Moses, as the head of his family, has not been obedient to keep 
the circumcision covenant. But it's going to cost him because he's about to pay with his life. The circumcision covenant has been an area of dispute between Moses and Zipporah. Now, Zipporah, she is a descendant of Ishmael. So this covenant doesn't have the same meaning to her as it does Moses. So we read that God in his understanding ways and mercy says, Okay, Moses, you do not have to obey my covenant or command. No. Did I say no? No. Not for a moment. Moses called of God to be the deliverer of the children of Israel. This great prophet Moses, the greatest man in the history of the Jewish faith to a Jew, is about to be killed by the Lord for his disobedience. That's pretty radical. Zipporah, she sees clearly that her husband is about to die because of her disobedience and because of her hard heart. Moses, he has wrongfully thought he did not have to obey or be obedient to the covenant of circumcision. Ah, God, God overlooks this, I guess. And now he is about to pay for that disobedience that negligence in his family, and he's about to pay with his very life. Circumcision among the Jewish people is still practiced today, and it is done on the eighth day of a newborn baby boy. And Jesus, on his eighth day of life, was took into the temple by his parents to be circumcised. Understand, if God says to Israel, to Abraham and his descendants, this is an everlasting covenant between himself and his people, guess what? It's an everlasting covenant. And you do not break that covenant with God. Circumcision remains today a covenant between the Hebrews, the Jewish people, and God. It does not apply to Gentiles. It's not our covenant. It's the Jewish covenant. But yet many Gentiles are circumcised. But the point here is very graphic. Don't miss this because we live in a world where there doesn't seem to be a lot of absolutes. We as believers are not allowed to pick and choose what we are obedient to. God never asked Zipporah if circumcision agreed with her culture or her upbringing or her mores. God has simply sent his angel to kill her husband right before her eyes and she understands this. She has crossed God. There are many commentators who believe that the tension between Moses and Zipporah is so severe after this circumcision 
that Moses sends Zipporah back to her family because we don't read of her anymore. And when we read these three verses, the importance of circumcision, the covenant between Israel and God, don't miss this because it's, it's so important. It's Moses that is about to be killed because Moses is held responsible to obey God and the covenant that is there between God and Israel. Men, like it or not, we are to enforce God's rules and his commandments in our families. The responsibility falls on the man. And that can mean tension. It did in Moses' family. It can mean tension between ourselves and our family to obey God. Zipporah, she's not a bit happy with Moses or God for that matter. Her remark is, you are a husband of blood. It's very telling about her attitude. And I point this out to every man here. We are required at times to make ethical decision, God-honoring decisions. We are to take a stand for God and his standards in our families. It's got to begin at home, guys. So to have a Christian wife, it is a tremendous blessing. It's much easier to be obedient to God when our wives are in agreement with us and God's word. Back before God destroyed the world with the flood and saved only Noah and his family, we read how everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Yet God destroyed millions because their doing right was not right. It was their opinion. Zipporah has obviously resisted Moses in doing what God commanded right in her own family. And Gershom, he's not a baby anymore. Uh, he, he, God has given Moses time to obey his command and it appears Moses has just passed over it and feels no reason to be obedient. Zipporah, she has flat out refused this command, refused to obey. And God has sent his angel to make sure Moses obeys his command. And if you don't obey Moses, I'm going to kill you. And it's that simple. God's patience with Moses has been looked on by himself that God's commands are suggestions. They're not really commands. And it almost cost Moses his life. God has declared that circumcision is an everlasting covenant. And God meant that it's everlasting. That's a strong lesson for us as 
the children of God to learn. That's a strong lesson. His commands to us are not suggestions. They're commands. To obey God's statutes, they're not optional. Stealing is never right. Lying is never justified. Adultery is never excused. When God declares, thou shall not, he means thou shall not. And it's interesting to understand that every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath laws that have pertained to the Jewish people. That's the only commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament. So the Ten Commandments, the statutes of God, are for us to obey. Even when we live in a world that ignores righteousness. It's not a popular thing now to be obedient to God. But allow me to do this for you. You want to simplify your life. I'm always looking for ways to simplify my life. God's regulations, his rules, his commands are real simple. If we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and if we love our neighbor as ourselves, which happens to be the theme of the New Testament, then we will find ourselves pleasing God, obedient to our God, and all the rules and regulations of Scripture fall into place if we simply love God with all our heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Didn't it just get easy? You don't have to remember to do anything but love God and please God with your life. And then we're in obedience. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, first of all, I want to thank you for your patience. Lord, Lord, by your spirit, many times you are so kind to convict us of where we are disobedient. So, Lord, help us to love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we will do this, Lord, then being obedient to you becomes easy, becomes a natural thing to do. So help us to do that. Help us to love unconditionally, Lord. Love you and love our fellow man. And then be pleasing to you. That's our desire, Lord, to be pleasing to you. So by your spirit, do that good work in our hearts and lives. We pray and ask for this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.